This is the Diaspora Dialogues podcast series. My name is Helen Walsh and I'm the president of DD. We have a number of programs and events that we produce right across the country. And we record the events in order to share with you the freshest new writers and thinking taking place both in Canada and in the U.S. In this next episode, which we recorded in Ottawa, CBC's Ithil Musa sat down with a really rising star on the American YA speculative scene, Zoraida Cordova, who was originally born in Ecuador but raised and lives in Brooklyn. Ithil and Zoraida had a conversation about how things are changing quicker in terms of diversity in young adult literature and publishing in the U.S. versus Canada, and how important it is for a young reader to be able to pick up a book that has characters that look just like them and has storylines that they can actually relate to. So for anybody who's writing YA or Kidlit or who's a parent or an educator, you're really going to want to have a close listen to this talk. I'm very, very honored uh, to be here with Zoraida Cordova. Zoraida was born in Ecuador and raised in Queens, New York. She is an award-winning author. Uh, she's written the Brooklyn Brujas series, the Vicious Deep trilogy. Her short fiction has appeared in the New York Times. Uh, they, they have a best-selling anthology, Star Wars. She's uh, written in From a Certain Point of View and Toil and Trouble. 15 Tales of Women and Witchcraft. That's a theme we're going to be talking about. I clearly have a brand. <laughs> yes. Well, it's important, you know. They say you need to, you need to have an identity and, and it's important to have a brand. And I'm, I'm glad that, I wasn't expecting to read your bio, but I'm glad I did because I really do want to talk about your Bruja, Brooklyn Brujas series because I think it's definitely unique. Thank you. Yeah. Now, I had originally was going to start talking to you about your second book, but I'm glad we're going to start at the beginning with Labyrinth. With Labyrinth Loss, absolutely. Lost. Yeah. Okay, it's a series. That story centers around the life of a, a young person by the name of Alex, uh, who is a bruja, and for people who don't know what that is, it's a witch. And she has powers, and she's quite uncomfortable with her powers. There's an unease, and she tries to cast a spell in order to rid herself of them, which of course backfires. Of course. Her family vanishes. I want to talk to you a little bit about that story, but let's take a step back. I want to know, what is it about Bruja's witchcraft that, that you find inspiring and, and, and a source of creativity? So I grew up in, in Hollis, Queens, uh, which is the only thing I have in common with Nicki Minaj. Um, That's an amazing thing to true. have in common. It's true. We're both from Hollis. And, and growing up in Hollis, there's really not a lot to do. It's not like Manhattan where you have cool coffee shops and things like that. You, you know, you go to the Wendy's or the Dunkin' Donuts, and those are perfectly great lifestyle choices when you're 16 and have nowhere else to go. But I was fascinated with the idea of finding magical places and finding magic in my very boring world. I've always been attracted to the spells and witches and vampires, much to my mother, my very immigrant Catholic mother's uh, horror. <laughs> um, I would bring home these books on witchcraft and magic and paganism, and she had no idea where it was coming from, and it was coming from when I was watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And, and so for me, it was this fascination with 
with the other. Because I think that at that moment in time, the books that I was attracted to were fantastical urban fantasies. But the books that I was being given were books about being an immigrant, Latinx, or Hispanic girl. And I didn't really want those books because I feel like those books always paint you in a certain light. Um, They always paint you as like a tragic story of like a border crossing. And I didn't feel like that story resonated with me. And so for me, magic is an embodiment of the other, but with the distance of fantasy as a storytelling. So it makes it a little bit more palatable for everyone to be able to read it. I'm also the daughter of immigrants. I'm I'm not even a first generation. I was born in the Middle East. And um, and I often would have to try and explain to people that, like, Africa is not a country. Yeah. It's a continent. <laughs> does everyone think you're, does everyone think you're Mexican? Is that? Is yeah. That, is it, that, yeah. Uh, my teachers, I mean, thankfully, when I, growing up, I, because Queens is, like, the most diverse part, I don't even know if, of the United States, but definitely New York, the most languages spoken in the borough. But at the same time, I'm from Ecuador, and whenever I've told people that, like, I went on a date with this guy, and he was, I was like, I'm from Ecuador, and he was like, where is that? Like, he had no idea. Just, and I think it's just because we're such a smaller Latin American country that I grew up with people not knowing and always having to explain myself that I'm not Spanish, Spanish people are from Spain, and things, those very, very basic things. And even to this, to this day, I, I don't, I don't mind the, like, the confusion because to me it's not an insult for somebody to say like, oh, you're Puerto Rican or you're Mexican. But I think that it's a matter of basic education to, to like, educate yourself of, of what countries are where. Yeah. I, I mentioned that because I'm interested in what you pulled from sort of your own upbringing. Because uh-huh. I, I know that you were born in Ecuador and then you left when you were five. What do, what do, you, what do you pull from your own sort of culture and what, what has that been like in your writing? So I think that the things that I pull from my culture are the stories that my grandmother used to tell us. And a lot, so I feel like Latinos really like to scare their children. I think it's, that's just... You have a lot in common with Somalis. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't eat all your soup. You know, that's the right. El Duende El Cuco is going to come and eat you in the middle of the night. Or if you don't behave, like, like La Llorona is going to take you. And so it's like you just grow up with this fear like weighing on your chest of these stories. Um, and so the only real thing that I had, because we were, uh, our family, because we were in Queens, we weren't the only, we were the only Ecuadorian family in our neighborhood until another Ecuadorian family moved right next door. And we were like, oh my God, it's like the same thing. But we're from the coast and they were from the mountains. So even culturally, like they spoke a different language. And being, having that isolation, the only thing that I had tying me to my Ecuadorianness was the stories that my grandmother would say. And the stories usually involved with like her grandfather and how her grandfather had made like a pact with like a river deity. And that's why he could always catch fish. And I was like, Sure, that's exactly. It's not because he had prowess as a fisherman. Um, it was definitely the pact that he made with this deity. It was a man. This like river, yeah, river uh, duende or gnome or whatever. And so I feel like Latin, like Latin American stories have always lended themselves to magical realism. But because I grew up in the United States, to me it's not magical realism, it's urban fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, I want to read something that um, that you wrote. I really appreciate that you you write about your process and 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 the and writing and what and what that's like. You wrote uh, this is in uh, 20, 2016 in September. You wrote fantasy borrows from other cultures. The actual borrowing is where things get tricky. There's a line between inspiration and cultural appropriation. That line is dangerous. Where do you draw it? Where do I draw the line? I think I drew the line using uh, real gods that don't belong to me. So the Brujas in the Brooklyn Brujas series, I created a pantheon of gods. I read books about Santeria and the Day of the Dead and Greek mythology, and I, I saw the structure, but I didn't take the real existing names and the real existing languages because, like, first of all, you don't want to put, I don't know what I'm invoking <laughs> of Santeria if I put it in my actual book and it doesn't belong to me. And there's a saying in, in Ecuador, and also I've heard it in other Latin American countries, which is it translates to, like, you don't F with the saints. And so basically that's where I drew the line. It's like using real things. And it forced me to expand my creativity and really test myself as an author to create an entire mythological system for these, these witches that live in Brooklyn. So the questions were, what gods do they pray to? What is the function of their gods? What is the relationship that they have with their magic? How is all of it tied? Do the gods exist on a real plane? And that's where I found the line, which is very precarious because I could have easily just been like, oh, these are my Orisha gods. But when you do that, like, even though I'm Latin American, like the Orishas belong to uh, Yoruba. So it's, it's not mine to take. Hey, I, I'm glad that you, that you mentioned the sensitivity with which you approach writing about these things, I think, because, you know, as you mentioned, the saints, they're sacred to some people. Yeah. Right. And it, it, one person's mm -hmm. mythology is somebody else's actual religion. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing that you, you wrote, don't worry, I'm not going to bring out too much. Thank you. Cause I, I can't even remember. I haven't writing. gone through your grade six diary. Like I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to mention anything embarrassing, but I, I think one thing that really stood out for me, cause you write in fantasy and you're writing for young people. And I'm going to get to that in a, a little bit later about writing for younger pe uh, people. But uh, one of the things that you wrote was that it's hard as a person of color in the fantasy genre. And I want you to tell me a little bit about that and what are some of the challenges that, that, that you face? I think that the one thing that I've, sort of, I've gotten over it now that um, it's been a while, it's when you're a person of color, people immediately assume that what you're writing about is real. So I have a lot of people congratulate me and thank me for teaching them about Latinx culture. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but these realms and gods don't exist. I mean, they exist in my own personal head, but I don't want you to, I don't want the come away. You want the keeper away. of knowledge? Yeah. I, like, I, and, and it's definitely not, it's not the only story. It's not the only, not the only voice. So the, the, uni the unique thing about publishing, specifically in the United States, is publishing in young, like the young adult age group is that there's often, there was, there's often only room for a handful of people writing the same thing. So for a long time, when you think about urban fan, like fantasy with a Latino magical system or which shouldn't even exist, like, cause it's not a, an actual term, people only 
say my name, but they forget other people's, people's works. And that's really frustrating. It's also frustrating having to explain yourself and figure out whether or not you want to tell your story through a white lens in order to make it palatable for everyone. Yeah, it almost seems like there's always only just room for one of us. Yeah. That there can't be an array of people doing, you know, uh, writing the same type of genre. I'm glad that you mentioned publishing because that's a great segue. Because I want to talk about that particularly for, you know, young writers of color that are going to be listening to this podcast. How did you get yourself published? How did you go from maybe starting as maybe writing as maybe a hobby to really um, getting to the point where you were being taken very seriously? I, you know, and I, I think it's, I inherited my mother's stubbornness. She will, she will never agree that she's stubborn, but Thankfully, she, we, never, we never clashed. I know that some kids clash with their immigrant parents about being an artist, but she thankfully never said, uh, we didn't come to this country so that you could be a writer. You know, she did encourage me to become a lawyer because she said that I argued really well with her. Um, <laughs> but I was like, that doesn't translate, Mom. I've always wanted to tell stories. I think that I was a liar as a little kid, who broke this? I don't know. This creature came through the window and, you know, I totally saw it. And so I, I would always like fabricate things because that's just how my brain processed things. And, and growing up, I, I figured out very early that writing was the only, the only gateway for me. I was listening to the Hamilton soundtrack and, you know, he's like, I wrote my way out. And you can write your way out of many different things. The publishing process. So for me, I, I went to the National Book Foundation's writing camp when I was 16. I was so cool going to writing camp, right? Which was great because I got to have teachers like uh, Kimiko Han for poetry and Jacqueline Woodson for, for, you know, lit- for writing. And that really shifted my perspective of how to break into the publishing industry because I was being taught by like real adults. And they took you seriously, even though you were only 16. And so from there, I went to college. I studied English literature. And I immediately got a literary internship, an internship at a literary agency. And from there, I submitted my work. And I got rejected a couple times. And the rejections were mostly, my books were not fantasy. They were contemporary. And so I wrote this, like, coming of age about a, it's not biographical at all. A 15-year-old Ecuadorian girl living in Queens uh, who yeah. didn't want to have her... Nothing sweet, like you. She didn't want to have her, uh, her quinceañera. <laughs> and the rejections were great. Like, this is really funny, but we already have the quinceañera book for the season. And that's, you know, that's that, that tokenism that we can only have that one, wall. that Highlander yeah. idea in publishing. And so I was so discouraged. I was like, I'm, 18, I'm 19 and I'm never going to get published. My life is over. But then I took like a breath (laughs) and I went back to school and I kept interning at different publications and, and sort of finding my way. And then, and then finally, like two years later, I was at the beach and then I started writing my, my mermaid fantasy. And it was really as simple as that, as finding the story that belongs to you at the right moment. That's right. And I think it's really useful too, because like a lot of artists and writers 
aren't business people. No. And so you kind of have to put a different hat we on. should be, though. <laughs> right? And, and so I think for you even doing that work at a literary agency, you kind of see how... You see the business aspect of it. Yeah. And I think that... Well, so writers, I think the one thing that we have to understand is that writing is an investment as much as, like, opening up a bar is an investment. You know what I mean? Like, you... Except we're more precious with, with our investment because it's our, like, love and fear and labor as opposed to just money that you can see right away that you're putting down on like a, a structure. And so if like your bar doesn't work out and closes is, is devastating. But like, and if you're, if you're, if your book doesn't work out and like ha it's harder to recover, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because so much of you goes into that book. I'm going to read you something else that, uh, it's going to sound a little depressing, but. Oh I'm no. Did I write it too? No. no. Okay. You did not write it. <laughs> You did not write this. This is actually based on a recent uh, CBC article online. It said that the uh, Writers' Union of Canada recently surveyed its members about their incomes. The results were sobering. An average writer made $9,380 a year from his or her writing. That's 27% less than three years ago and a whopping 78% less than they made in 1998. It goes on to say that even for established authors, ones that have won prestigious prizes, tales of financial hardship are increasingly common. Are you able to make a living on your writing? And if you're not able to do it just solely on your writing, how do you find that balance? So I used to have another job before I became a full-time writer two years ago. I, and I used to work in the service industry. I worked at nightclubs and bars. And I finally realized that if I'm like... Writing is its own, comes with its own, you know, like your boss is yelling at you, except you're your own boss, so you're yelling at yourself. And I, I got to that moment where I'm like, you know what, I, I need to do this. And you, you take a chance on yourself. And, you, and so for me, it, it is, but I, it is livable, but I also don't have children or a husband to take care of. So I don't really need to worry about anyone except for myself and my 26-year-old brother who lives with me. <laughs> it's wonderful. And, and so that, I, I would like to say something about the, the statistics. And I think that the reason that happens is because we, put, we don't put enough of a value on words and on writing and on art. And I think we expect writing to be free. And a lot of people expect it to be free. And there is a problem where the access to books is only for people with money. You know, so if you don't have money, you're not going to have access to books. But how does a writer create when their work is free, right? So there's this catch-22, and it's like the cyclical thing. And I think that one day I would hope we will find a balance with, with that. You know? I completely agree. I completely agree with that. I think um, we, don't, uh, we don't value art enough. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, the, we get so much back from that. I hope you don't mind me asking you this. No, it's fine. But how old oh. are you? Oh. <laughs> oh, wait, how old am I? I'm 31. Okay. You're 31 and you have published eight books? Nine. Yeah. Nine Same. books. <laughs> I took I out write... the garbage this morning. That was like, <laughs> that's on my resume. My, my brother took out the garbage this morning. Okay. So. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. So this leads me to my next <laughs> question, which is about process. And I know that you have said you are not the fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants kind of writer. You need a blueprint. You need organization. 
And you came to this conclusion because you learned a lesson. Oh, yeah. Oh, you found that out. Yeah, you're a good researcher. <laughs> so I want you to share that lesson and oh, tell no. me a little bit about your process. <laughs> yeah. Because I think my process is, is if I don't have a hard deadline, it's just one cat video after another. So <laughs> how do you do it? I mean, there's only so much time you can spend online, like, looking at on Tumblr images of, like, That's Chris Evans. Um, <laughs> I think that, so the story that she's referring to is, when I wrote my first novel, The Vicious Deep, I never expected it to really be published, so I didn't work out the magical timeline, and I was like, so this kid, he has, he has a championship to become the Sea King. And the championship is a fortnight, because I was like, fortnight, that's a cool word. It's 14 days. And I didn't realize that because of, because I set that in book one, uh, I truncated my entire series. My entire trilogy takes place over the course of 14 days. And then the last chapter takes place over like a series of months when they're fixing everything up. And so I could have avoided that. It also like, it's a motif, like it, it shortens the pacing and it creates like, suspense. So maybe like I could pat myself on the back a little bit, but not too much because at the time I was really stressed out. Now, ever since then, I am a hardcore outliner. I outline my books. And this is not to say I have some friends, Daniel Jose Older, who don't believe in outlines. You know, he's like, oh, I get bored. I love him so much. His book, Shadow Shaper, if you haven't read it, you should read it. They get bored without an outline. But for me, it's kind of like, knowing that I'm going to sit down to like a seven course meal. And then I'm just like thinking, like dreaming about like the next thing that's, that I'm going to get. And each thing is appetizing and each thing should be appetizing until I finally get like, yes, my final chapter, my dessert is here. And so that's how I choose to look at it. Because if I'm, if I'm bored by my outline, then I'm going to be bored by my book. And so some of my friends outline every six chapters. I do the entire story and as I look at that story, things change. All of a sudden, a character will show up that was never meant to be there, or somebody makes a decision which is the opposite of what I've written down. Outlines change as your story changes, as the words make sense. But it's nice to have a blueprint. It's like saying, I want to get from New York to California, but you know, I'm going to stop in Kansas along the way. Yeah. That's yeah. right. We've got a Kenziaite in the audience. <laughs> I call you that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And so, okay, another question. I know this is just because I'm so curious about how writers work. Like, how do you write? Do you need a room? Do you need quiet? I, Are you in cafes? I usually, I used to write in cafes, but I, I like got into this fight with this guy at my coffee shop because we both wanted to sit in the same chair because it's like a high back chair and it's by the plug. And so I should just get an office like an adult. But so I, like, you know, we would both be like passive aggressive about being needing this chair. So I just now to save myself uh, a half an hour of like getting dressed and walking to the coffee shop, I just make my coffee at home and I make sure that my desk is as clean as it'll ever be. And I set up shop there and I, I time myself in 25 minute increments because turns out when you sit for really long periods of time, your back hurts <laughs> the older you get. Because like when I was writing in my early 20s, I could just not stand back up. But now I'm like, oh, I got to stand up. Otherwise, I get like these like aching pains. And so 
my process is basically making my home feel like an office, a comfortable office. And I have my section and I, I just I just get to work. I drink, I don't snack, I drink a pot of coffee throughout the whole day. And I I try to make my life into a very, very condensed list so that I feel like I'm checking everything off. And it also depends on how I'm how I'm writing. I don't write on my laptop. I write on this contraption called a free write. It used to have an Alpha Smart, which is just a word processor. But the free write is a um, like a digital typewriter that it's not connected. It's connected to the internet, but only to upload your file. Um, and you, the only thing you can do on it is write. Wow. So I can't go on my Great. computer. I mean, obviously, I go on my phone because I'm attached to my Instagram. But other, other than that, I feel like creating a wall between me and the real world because I get distracted super easily. All you have to say is like, hey, Zara, do you want to come outside for 15 minutes and take a walk? And then I won't be home like again for five hours. So I, I really have to like cut myself off from things and like focus on the work. You know? Well, thank you for, for sharing that because <laughs> I'm always so curious about how people do what they do, like mm-hmm. just the nitty gritty and the fact that you have like an implement that you use that helps you just kind of focus, the fact that you're timed. You've got like sort of an outline so you know where you're going to and you, yeah. you, you want to, you know. You I draw maps. Out. I draw maps of all of my worlds and then I send them to an artist. And so we put it in the, the beginning of each book. So it feels yeah. real and you know yeah. these, these places. Also, if you're a writer, if you're writing fantasy, sometimes it, like you'll, if you're, you can't figure out what happens, like it helps to doodle your, your, your world and to make a map and see where you are physically and that helped me solidify the, the plot arc of Labyrinth Lost is when I finally drew the map myself. That's great. Yeah. Before we get to the, to, the, to the questions, I guess my last question to you um, is, why young readers? What is it about young people that you connect with and that allows you to create characters that they relate to? It started off because I started writing so young that my characters were always kids like me. And they had my voice, and eventually I aged out of being a teenager, and my characters stayed teenagers, which I don't know what that says about my maturity levels. But hopefully good things, because I think that as I do more school visits and more events, I feel like teenagers are, like, they're the literal future. And I think that when you write complex stories for them, you give them the ability to have an adventure, to have, like, moral moral dilemmas you give them the opportunity to like make these big decisions through a book and i think that the more we empower like young kids the better our future will hopefully look lovely answer you're squishing your face but that's a wonderful well because i said like you know yeah especially now <laughs> yeah. in the united states <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely and are you being influenced by what's happening? are you thinking about it creatively um i think that it's always been there because Young adult stories are stories of rebellion. Um, and so now we just have to like lean in to, to that rebellion. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Soraya. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this program. Please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast provider. If you're an emerging writer interested in receiving our open calls for submissions or invites to our events, please join our DD newsletter by emailing us at info at diasporadialogues.com with subscribe in the subject line. 
Thanks so much for listening.